Marks of a Biblical Faith. Number eight in the Judges series. This is an exposition of Judges chapter five. This message by Pastor Rod Harris was delivered at Trinity Baptist Church on Sunday morning, June the 6th, 2021. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for, again, this privilege of worship, this opportunity to gather together in your name. Father, I pray now that as we gather around your word that you would open it to us, that we might be nourished and fed and encouraged and strengthened, that we might live out the truth of the gospel, that the faith that we profess would be the faith lived out. Father, as you speak, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. But more than that, grant to us the courage, the boldness to order our lives according to the truth of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Ball games can be pretty exciting, especially if the score goes back and forth. Especially it can be exciting if your team is a decided underdog, but somehow they're able to keep the game close. And when something happens that's unexpected, when something happens that's out of the ordinary, the crowd goes wild. Especially if there's a band. If there's a band and the, the people are into the game and something exciting happens, people just go crazy. And I have a confession. And this drives Reed on crazy. I'm not exactly an excitable fan. I'm one of those that tends to sit there like this, with my arms folded, staring at the cheerleader saying, no, I will not stand. No, I will not say that. I will not follow your commands. You don't own me. You're not the boss of me. But even I, when something exciting happens, when something unexpected happens, I'm on my feet and I'm cheering. Because it's just the way we are. It's the way we're put together. It's the way we're made. It's natural to us. When something exciting, unexpected happens, we want to cheer. And the more unexpected, the more improbable, the more excited we are. And really, exuberance is the only acceptable response to that kind of thing. So, my question is, if that's the case, how come that never happens in church? One of the reasons is we've lost the wonder and the joy and the excitement of the gracious working of our God. We've read the story. We've systematized the text. We've dogmatized the text. We've Catalog the truth to the point that it's become detached and cold. Well, Israel had not lost their emotions. That's one of the things that decades of oppression will do for you. They still remembered the joy, the wonder that overcame them whenever God showed up and did a saving work. That's really the point of Judges chapter 5. And that's our text this morning. Judges chapter 5, the song of Deborah. And we're going to look at the entire chapter. 
Chapter 4 tells the story of Deborah, Barak, Jabin, Sisera, and Jael. It's a remarkable story with twists and turns and all kinds of questions. The point being, God delivering His people yet again. They again did evil in the sight of God. They again went whoring after other gods, incurring God's sovereign, righteous judgment. God sold them into the hand of Jabin, the king of Canaan. Jabin's enforcer was Sisera, who cruelly oppressed or vehemently tormented Israel for 20 years. And then they cried out to the Lord, and God raised up a deliverer. He brought them out. Chapter 4 tells that story. Chapter 5 tells that story again, this time poetically. It's the only time it happens in the book of Judges. The only song we have in the book of Judges is a really long song at that, but it seems out of place. It, it, it breaks the pattern. We're reading along and we're seeing this pattern emerge. There, there's this downward spiral into apostasy and judgment. Then there's a cry for help. Then a deliverance. And then there's peace. And then they repeat the cycle. That's what we're expecting. The story has been told. They went after other gods. God brought judgment. God sold them into judgment. Then they cried out to the Lord. And the Lord delivered them. And then there's a song. It's unexpected. We're supposed to go back in. There was time of peace. Then we go back again. They, they did evil in the sight of the Lord again. Why this song? This is kind of a Monty Python moment in the midst of the judges. And now for something completely different. It just it doesn't fit. It breaks the pattern. A song. A joyful song of victory. Judges is a grim tale. I mean, there are all these dark, depressing things and themes running throughout the book. And as you're reading along in the book of Judges, you keep hoping things are going to get better, but they never do. At least not for long. And now there's this song of joy. In the midst of this collection of unhappy stories, there is this joyful song of victory. Now I say it's a joyful song. There are some dark elements to the song. We're going to see that in a moment. Let's look. Judges chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. Then sang Deborah and Barak, the son of Abinoam, on that day. And the leaders took the lead in Israel, and the people offered themselves willingly. Bless the Lord. Hear, O kings, give ear, O princes, to the Lord I will sing. I will make melody to the Lord, the God of Israel. Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the region of Edom, the earth trembled, the heavens dropped. Yes, the clouds dropped water. The mountains quaked before the Lord. Even Sinai before the Lord, the God of Israel. In the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the highways were abandoned and travelers kept to the byways. The villagers ceased in Israel. They ceased to be until I arose. I, Deborah, arose as a mother in Israel. When new gods were chosen, then war was in the gates. Was shield or spear to be seen among 40,000 in Israel? My heart goes out to the commanders of Israel who offered themselves willingly among the people. Bless the Lord. Tell of it 
You who ride on white donkeys, you who sit on rich carpets, and you who walk by the way to the sound of musicians at the watering places. There they repeat the righteous triumphs of the Lord, the righteous triumphs of his villagers in Israel. Then down to the gates march the people of the Lord. Awake, awake, Deborah. Awake, awake. Break out in song. Arise, Barak. Lead your, away, lead your captives, O son of Abinoam. Then down marched the remnant of the noble. The people of the Lord marched down for me against the mighty. From Ephraim, their route, they marched down into the valley. Following you, Benjamin, with your kinsmen. From Machir marched down the commanders. And from Zebulun, those who bear the lieutenant's staff. The princes of Issachar came with Deborah and Issachar faithful to Barak. Into the valley, they rushed at his heels. Among the clans of Reuben, there were great searchings of heart. Why did you sit still among the sheepfolds to hear the whistling for the flocks? Among the clans of Reuben, there were great searchings of heart. Gilead stayed beyond the Jordan. And Dan, why did he stay with the ships? Asher sat still at the coast of the sea, staying by his landings. Zebulun is a people who risk their very lives to the death. Nephtali, too, on the, on the heights of the field. The kings came. They fought. Then fought the kings of Canaan at Tanakh by the waters of Megiddo. They got, they got no spoils of silver. From heaven the stars fought. From their courses they fought against Sisera. The torrent of Kishon swept them away. The ancient torrent, the torrent Kishon, march on my soul with might. Then loud beat the horses' hooves with the galloping, galloping of the steeds. Cursed Meroz, says the angel of the Lord. Curse us inhabitants thoroughly, because they did not come to the help of the Lord, to the help of the Lord against the mighty. Most blessed among women be Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. Of tent-dwelling women most blessed. He asked for water. She gave him milk. She brought him curds in a noble's bowl. She set her hand to the tent peg and her right hand to the, mark, to the workman's mallet. She struck Sisera. She crushed his head. She, pierced, she shattered and pierced his temple. Between her feet he sank, he fell, he lay still. Between her feet he sank, he fell. Where he sank, there he fell, dead. Out of the window she peered, the mother of Sisera, wailing through the lattice. Why is this chariot so long in coming? Why tarry the hoofbeats of his chariots? Her wisest princesses answered. Indeed, she answers herself. Have they not found and divided the spoil? A womb or two for every man? Spoil of dyed materials for Sisera? Spoil of dyed materials embroidered? Two pieces of dyed work embroidered for the neck as spoil? So may all your enemies perish, O Lord, but your friends be like the sun 
as he rises in his might. And the land had rest for 40 years. See what I mean? A bit disturbing. Joyful, victorious, and yet disturbing. I'm not sure what the tune would be. I'm especially not sure how that section would go there toward the end. She sent her hand to the tent peg and her right hand to the workman's mallet. She struck Sisera. She crushed his head. She shattered and pierced his temple. Between her feet he sank. He fell. He lay still. Between her feet he sank. He fell. Where he sank, there he fell dead. Not exactly a toe tapper. I'm not sure what that sounds like. I'm not sure what kind of tune you play for play with that, but I also wonder about the the gruesome nature of it. The gruesome detail. But it is a celebration. And if you don't get that, if that bothers you that they're singing about that, it probably means you've not been vehemently tormented for a couple of decades. Because that makes all the difference in the world. As we work our way through this song, I think that we'll discover that biblical faith is marked by joyful praise, honest assessment, and a sense of awe and reverential fear. What marks a biblical faith? What, what, what marks a faith as being consistent with biblical truth, being consistent with the biblical message. I I think those three things mark it. Joyful praise, honest assessment, and a sense of reverence and fear. Three things I want to say about this song. First of all, the heart of faith joyfully sings the praise of God's gracious deliverance of His people. Part of what marks us as the people of God is this sense of joy and our singing of God's grace, God's deliverance, God's working on our behalf. Our faith is a singing faith. And it always has been. Both the Old and the New Testament are punctuated with song. Going all the way back to God's deliverance of His people from Egypt when uh, Pharaoh's army was drowned in the Red Sea and Moses burst out in great song and joyful victory there in Exodus all the way through Revelation chapter 5 when there's a new song. We are the people of God, a singing people. We even have that hymn book right in the middle of the Bible, those 150 songs that comprise the hymn book of the people of God. Our faith is a singing faith. Why? Because it's natural to us when something exciting and joyful and overwhelming happens, we are moved to sing. When we are burdened, when we are discouraged, there is something that rises up within us when we consider the grace and the mercy and the kindness of God that causes us to sing. Verse 1 gives us the context. It was on that day that Deborah and Barak broke out in song. What day? That day of victory. That day that God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan. That day when the decisive victory was won and the Lord routed Sisera in the day that Jael drove that truth home. On that day, Deborah and Barak sang the song of praise to God. The song begins with bless. 
the Lord. Now, how does a, how does a people, how, how does a creature, how does the inferior bless the superior? Well, the word blessed in that context means to extol or to exalt or to shout or to give praise or glory and honor. Well, they gave glory and honor unto the Lord. It is to the Lord I will sing. I will make melody to the Lord, the God of Israel. Now what exactly are they singing about? Verse 4 makes it clear. Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the region of Eden, they sang because the God of Israel was on the move. They sang because the God of Israel delivered them, because the God of Israel moved on their behalf. Again, salvation is the work of God. Deliverance is the gracious working of God in the lives of His people. And so they're rejoicing in the goodness and the grace of God in delivering His people. And note, the earth trembled, the heavens dropped water, the mountains quaked. That harkens back to Mount Sinai. These are the signs of the presence of God. God has showed up. And there's reason to sing and rejoice to celebrate. Why are they so exuberant? Because of the conditions. You see that in verses 6-8. through eight. As, the, as the writer in poetic terms describes life at the time when God raised up Deborah and Barak and used Jael to deliver the people. We're told that the highways were abandoned. Travelers kept to the byways, that is the back roads. Village life ceased. War was in the gates. There were no shields or swords to be found in Israel. In other words, it was a time of treachery. It was a time in which village life ceased. It was a time of war. And Israel was helpless and hopeless. That's the point of there not being any shields or swords. Now, We do need to ask a question at this point. Who does Israel have to blame for all of this? Well, Jabin, king of Canaan, Sisera, his enforcer, they've brought this cruelty on them. They're the ones tormenting. They're the ones oppressing. Well, no, actually they have themselves to blame. Because they again did what was evil in the sight of God. They went whoring after other gods. They began to give themselves to that which is not God at all. And they have brought this judgment of God upon themselves. And yet God is gracious. God is merciful. How did the Lord deliver them? Well, listen. Starting in verse 19 and following. The kings came, they fought. Then fought the kings of Canaan at Tanakh by the waters of Megiddo. They got no spoils of silver. From heaven the stars fought. From their courses they fought against Sisera. The torrent of Kishon swept them away. The ancient torrent, the torrent Kishon, marched on, march on, O my soul, with might. Then loud beat the horses' hooves, the gallop of galloping steeds. In other words, 
added to the story. We don't read this back in chapter 4. This is added in chapter 5 as we're given a little more detail. Apparently a great storm came up. The, the heavens are is dropping water. There's, there's thunder. There's lightning. There's this violent storm that arises. And Kaishan, that at this time of year would have been a basic a, a dry creek bed, became a raging torrent. And if a raging torrent all of a sudden surrounds 900 chariots of iron, they don't move too well. And thus the Lord routed Jabin. The Lord routed Sisera. The Lord, through heavenly forces, brought divine victory. Often in Canaanite worship, Baal is portrayed as the god of thunder. He is portrayed with a hammer in one hand and a bolt of lightning in the other, astride horseback. And the biblical writer is saying, you're impressed with Baal, but you need to understand it is Yahweh. It is the God of Israel. It is the true and living God who is the true storm bringer. He controls all things. He is sovereign. And He is a warrior God. Now, again, I need to ask you, how comfortable are you with that? Are you comfortable thinking of God in these terms? He is a warrior God. Listen to Exodus chapter 15. That's the song of Moses. This is after the, the, the crossing of the Red Sea and the Lord allowing the waters to come back and drown the army of Egypt. And Moses breaks forth in song and here's what he says. The Lord... Yahweh, the covenant name for God, the Lord is a man of war. The Lord is His name. Pharaoh's chariots and His host He cast into the sea, and His chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. Now, moderns aren't comfortable with this language. People in today's world, people in today's culture, they want a kinder, gentler deity. So they're uncomfortable with this notion of God being a warrior God. But this is an image that needs to be reclaimed by the church. A discouraged and hopeless people need to know that our God is sufficient to meet every need. He is adequate to meet every challenge. Now, the church today doesn't like to sing onward Christian soldiers. We want no part of a militant faith, but we had better understand, we had better rediscover this is war. It is a battle between good and evil. A battle between light and darkness. And yes, our weapons are not carnal, and we do not fight with flesh and blood, but don't you ever forget, don't ever lose sight of the fact, it is a war. And in this war, the souls of men and women, boys and girls, are at stake. We need to know that we have a God who is adequate to the challenge. We have a God who is sufficient for us to stand our ground. 
By the way, we are told in the New Testament that the church will be built by the Lord Jesus. He will build His church. And what does the biblical writer go on to say? And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. What does that mean? The image given to us in the Scripture is not we, the church, retreating to our fortress and doing our best to close the gate and keep hell out. We are to be on the offensive. We are to be marching. We are to be declaring the truth of the gospel. We are to storm the gates of hell. Gates are not offensive weapons. They're defensive weapons. But recognize we do not fight on the terms of the world. We fight on the terms of our commander and king. And that's prayer. And that's the faithful proclamation of the gospel. And that's to love our enemies. Starting in the 1980s, the evangelical church decided there is power in political maneuvering and political manipulation. And I want to suggest to you that we are not the better off as the church because of that strategy. The church has become more and more like the world. I'm not saying we don't stand our ground, and I'm not saying we don't vote for godly people who will stand on godly principle. I'm not saying that at all, but what I am saying is don't put your hopes, don't put your dreams, don't put your eternal destiny in the hands of any party or any elected official. We trust in the Lord our God, and we march according to the order of our King. And that's a gospel work. That's a result of your and my living out the truth of the gospel every single day. It's a matter of our talking to our co-workers and our neighbors and our family about the wonder of God's grace and His mercy to us and the difference God makes in our lives and the difference that God will make in their life and the need for light and salt in this dark, dying, decaying world. That's our warfare. But don't ever forget it is a war. And there's so much at stake. Our God is not some tribal deity. He is God of heaven and earth. He is the sovereign of all creation. And before Him, every knee will bow. And so along with the Apostle Paul, we declare, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and He will deliver us. On Him we have set our hope that, we will, that He will deliver us again. The heart of faith joyfully sings the praise 
of God's gracious deliverance of his people. There's a second thing. The heart of faith honestly assesses both the triumph and the tragedy of our service to God. That's in verse 12 down through verse 18. The biblical record is clear. We in the church do not live in a bubble. We don't wear rose-colored glasses refusing to see any blemish. The Scripture is brutally honest about the men and women of faith. Our heroes are viewed with warts and all. Even in this jubilant song about this great victory that's been won, there's an honest portrayal of the people of God. And as you look in this section, particularly verses 12 through 18, you discover that there are two kinds of people within this nation, the nation of Israel. There are those who are willing to risk all for the sake of the kingdom of God, and there are those who insist on playing it safe. And so in this section is a kind of a roll call, a, a list of those who did and those who did not participate. Chapter 4, we learned about Zebulun and Nephtali, but we find out that there was a lot more involved. There, this was a much larger uh, operation than we first thought. First, there are the participants. We see them, Ephraim from the southern part of Israel, and then Benjamin from the southernmost part, both of those in verse 14. There's Micar, the leading clan of Manasseh that's east of the Jordan River. They're participating. Zebulun and Issachar in verses 14 and 15. Then in the middle of verse 15, everything kind of changes. Now uh, there's a note of equivocation. There's division seen, even among the people of God, and a darker tone takes over. We read about Reuben, who rather than going down and getting involved, they stayed at home and watched their sheep. Gilead stayed home beyond the Jordan. Dan remained with their ships. Asher was so wedded to the sea that they didn't bother to get involved. So there were those who were willing to risk all and there were those who weren't willing to risk anything among the people of God. Zebulun and Nephtali in, chapter, in, in verse 18 are singled out for their heroic service on the field of honor, risking their very lives to death. Then down in verse 23, a village, Meroz, is cursed by the angel of God for their utter failure. They did nothing. Now we don't, we're not sure who these folks are. We're not sure what tribe lived there. We're not even sure where this little village was, but apparently it was in a strategic place. Maybe it was in one of those areas that they could have shut off the retreat of the enemy army. But the point is, they did nothing. And none less than the angel of the Lord cursed them for doing nothing. The point is, while it is God who saves doesn't mean that we have no role to play. We're not innocent bystanders with no stake in this war. We will be called to account. Obedience matters. Disobedience matters. Indifference brings the curse of God. Biblical faith demands an honest assessment of where we stand. A genuine recognition of both the triumphs and the tragedy of our faith. Victories and defeats, obedience and inaction. We're not allowed the luxury of merely being a spectator in this epic battle. One day, you and I individually, one day, you and I as a church will stand before the judge of all the earth and give account. 
As R.G. Lee used to say, there's a payday someday. Part of a biblical faith is a willingness to honestly assess where we are. Where Where do we stand? Where do we stand in relationship with God? Where do we stand on in our obedience. As we look at the culture around us, as as we recognize the world in which we live, what are we doing? What are we not doing? Where have we been faithful and where have we failed? Biblical faith is willing to honestly assess both the triumph and the tragedy of our faith. Quickly, there's one, one last thing. The heart of faith stands in awe of the wonder of God's saving ways and the utter haunting devastation of those who remain the enemies of God. That's verse 24 through 31. This song closes with a depiction of two women. One most blessed among women, the other painted in dark, haunting tones. Both of them are intimately connected with the story of chapter 4, Jael, the hammer-wielding Savior, and the mother of Sisera, a lost, grieving soul. And what do you make of Jael? She's mentioned along with Shamgar marking the time back in verse 6 in the, in the days of Shamgar, in the days of Jael. Now we know that she's the wife of a distant relative of Moses. She's a Kenite. But apparently she doesn't hold to her husband's political views. He's entered into an alliance with Jabin. She doesn't seem to share that alliance. I have to be honest with you, as I read the story, as I read chapter 4, and as I read chapter 5 and the retelling of the story, I come to a conclusion, she's not a nice person. She welcomes Sisera, calms his fears, tucks him into bed, gives him milk, hushes him to sleep, then takes a tent peg and hammers it through his skull, Not a nice thing to do. Just to be blunt about it, I wouldn't want to be married to her. I'd be afraid to sleep at night. But clearly, she is a hero in our text. She's praised in this song. It's just another reminder to us that our God uses people that we're not always comfortable with. His ways are not our ways. Therefore, you and I need to be careful about absolutizing our Christian culture, even our theological systems, because our God will not fit in our box, regardless of how large or what shape He simply will not fit. He doesn't always do as we expect Him to do. He doesn't always do what our systems demand. And thank God for that. After all, He is God of mercy. He is a God of grace. Deborah's leadership was exceptional. 
doesn't fit the pattern. As I read the Scripture, starting in Genesis and going throughout the whole book, it seems clear to me, it seems evident to me, in an honest reading of the biblical text, God intends men, husbands, fathers to take the lead. But this woman is leading Israel because of a lack of leadership. God's working outside the box. And as the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth, and as the sovereign King of His people, He's free to act outside the norms if He chooses. He's not violating His person. He isn't violating who He is. But He may act differently than we expect. And also we need to be careful and not confuse godliness with respectability. They're not always the same. You can be considered very respectable and be absolutely godless and pagan. Respectability does not equal godliness. The Pharisees were exhibit A. Extremely respectable. Well thought of among the Jews, the people of God but they were the enemies of Christ. What about the mother of Sisera? This is such a haunting scene to me in verses 28 through 30. I mean, picture her. Picture her standing at the window, peering through the curtain, longing for her son to return and wondering what's taking so long. And she even wonders out loud, why is he delayed in coming? Her maids respond, they're probably too busy dividing up the spoils of war. She agrees with them. In fact, her black soul is revealed in verse 30. I want you to look at it. Because it's an important insight into this person. She answered herself, Have they not found and divided the spoil, a womb or two for every man, spoil of dyed materials for Sisera, spoil of dyed materials embroidered, two pieces of dyed work embroidered for the neck as spoil? This woman, this mother, reducing women to nothing more than the objects of pleasure for the enjoyment of men as the spoils of war. Look at how she referred to the women. A womb or two. She reduced them to objects. She reduced these women oppressed as nothing more than instruments of pleasure to be used and tossed aside. It reveals this black heart of a pagan woman. In a sense, I pity her because I know the fate of this son that she loves dearly. 
I know that while she stands looking out that window, wondering, where's my boy? Why hasn't he come back? I know that he's in the tent of Jael with his head pinned to the floor. Dead. And I pity her. But I'm overwhelmed. I'm haunted by the careless, passionless soul of this godless woman. The stark contrast here at the end of the Song of Deborah underscores a very important fact. That there are only two kinds of people in the world. The friends of God and the enemies of God. One, immeasurably blessed. The other, the other absolutely utterly damned. This song of victory ends on a very sobering note. A note that reminds us that the heart of faith is marked by the awe, the wonder of God's grace and mercy, His kindness to us and stands in reverential fear of the holy and living God. Two kinds of people. One blessed and one damned. And the only way you end up in the blessed camp is to acknowledge your sin, turn from your sin, and trust in Christ and Christ alone. And then you are changed from the enemy of God to the friend of God. The one utterly damned to the one immeasurably blessed. And how? Not by anything that you do. Not by anything you accomplish. It isn't because, well, you finally recognize your sin and you decided I'm going to clean up my act and I'm going to work really hard and I'm going to go to church and I'm going to read my Bible and I'm going to do all these things and eventually I'll get to the point that God will love me. No, there's no hope of that. Your only hope is to say, I fully deserve God's eternal wrath and judgment. And I plead for the mercy of God by trusting in His Son, the Lord Jesus, and in Him alone. Until you despair of ever being good enough to be loved by God, until you despair of ever being able to achieve righteousness, you'll never know grace. You'll never know forgiveness. But if you will throw yourself on the mercy of God in the person of the Lord Jesus, you will be showered with grace. Not just today or tomorrow or next week or the next few years, but for all eternity. There's the gracious, merciful gift of a loving, gracious God. We learn, we learn again. 
The book of Judges is a gospel book telling us of the grace and the mercy of God. I must ask you today, where do you stand? You're in one, one, one side or the other. There's no in-between. You are either today, right now, the enemy of God or the friend of God. Where do you stand? Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your kindness, your mercy in revealing yourself to us and making the gospel clear. Lord, I pray that as you open our eyes, as you grant us insight and faith that we will believe, that we will trust in Christ. Father, I pray for those who are here this morning who've been striving. They, they've, they've recognized some sin, some issue in their life that they know is wrong, they know is a problem, and they're working really hard. But every day is a discouragement. Every day is a reminder of their inability. Lord, today, open their eyes to the wonder of Your grace. The grace that brings forgiveness and peace and strength to then overcome. Not in their strength, not in their striving, but in the presence and power of the Spirit of God within them, molding, shaping them into the image and likeness of the Lord Jesus, working holiness in them toward that day when they will be home and whole. Lord, today, open our minds and hearts to the wonder and the truth of the Gospel. And grant us courage and faith to believe. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to encourage you, if you've got questions, to stay and visit with us after the service. We'd love to, to visit with you. If, you. if it needs more time and we need to make an appointment for later in the week, we'll be happy to do that. But I, please, I beg of you, if the Lord is dealing with your heart, don't just walk away. Respond. Deal with it. Deal with it now. Deal with it today. We'd love to visit with you after the service. You got questions about how you become part of our church family? We'd love to visit with you about that. You've been listening to the TBC Tulsa podcast, which features the preaching ministry of Pastor Rod Harris at Trinity Baptist Church, located at the corner of 41st and Union in Tulsa, Oklahoma. To learn more about Trinity Baptist Church, visit us on the web at www.tbctulsa.org.